stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn to John's Gospel in the 10th chapter. We'll be taking up in verse 22. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. My apologies, I said 22, it's a verse um, 31. Verse 30 will start and connect the two. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in the law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If you do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to a place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. O Lord our God, we do rejoice that we are a people called out of the world. We rejoice that we are a people called by your name, that you've brought us unto Christ, united us to Christ, that there we are in him and under he, the living word. Father, even now, as the scriptures are open, we pray that you would bless the preaching and hearing of the word that we would hear the truth of Christ and truth concerning Christ, and that we would have ready hearts, yielded and submissive, that your spirit would work mightily within us. Lord, give us eyes to see Christ with even greater clarity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Once again, let us remember the reason the Apostle John wrote this gospel, this gospel according to John, We've gone to it often because it's uh, the reason he wrote. He's declared to us. That's why he wrote John twenty thirty one that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the main point of controversy at this point in John chapter 10. Jesus has revealed himself as the good shepherd who fulfills the Old Testament prophecies about the coming shepherd. There's so many scriptures that are fulfilled just in in this uh, picture, this type of shepherd, him being the good shepherd. He fulfills them all. He is the one who God sent into the world to replace the bad shepherds that had been unfaithful in Israel and preyed upon God's people. Jesus has called out the religious leaders of his day, men who stood before him right there and indeed through many of these uh, discussions. He stood before them and he called them thieves and robbers, those who have come to steal, kill, and to destroy. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, not just a shepherd to care for the sheep, but indeed the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The Jews then are divided over him. We've seen that a couple times. John has recorded that there was a division amongst the, the Jews, whether he's speaking of the religious leaders or the people. There are those in their midst that are believing because the Spirit has worked in them. There are those on one side that claim Jesus has a demon, while others are maintaining that that's impossible, for he's opened the eyes. He's given sight to a man blind from birth, and one inhabited or occupied by a demon cannot do such a mighty thing. Well, the Jews have now surrounded Jesus on Solomon's porch and demanded a plain answer. They said, Are you the Christ? Last week we heard Jesus answered. Even if he had told them, he says, you would not believe. And why is it that they would not believe? He says, because you're not my sheep. And he goes on to say that he has done works in his father's name. 
this, this continues to be as we move on, this, this matter of the works that he's done in the Father's name uh, seems to be a critical point. And they even would, as we've seen, acknowledge that there might be something to that. But they are incensed at the claim he's made in verse 30, I and my Father are one. We are challenged to consider if we are his sheep. Do we hear Jesus' voice? Do, do we follow, that is, do we obey him? And if yes is the answer that we can give to this question, then we are secure in Christ. We're secured in his hand, he said last week, and his Father's hand as well. We are secured and kept. What a tremendous promise to those who believe. I and the Father are one. To those who believe, that is a tremendous promise. But to the unbelieving, it is. it seems to them to be blasphemy. We're going to pick up in the narrative here, and we're going to continue with four main headings. A false charge, the true Christ, the God-man, answering the false charge, and then we'll close with some implications and applications. We begin then with a false charge. Jesus has said, I and my Father are one, in verse 30. The response of the Jews was one that they've made before. What was their response? At this point, they're not saying anything. They're, they're gathering. They're taking up stones, as the, the verb indicates. They're, they're seeking for stones to hurl at Jesus. And John says, again, Back in John, John chapter 5, verse 18, it was recorded that the Jews desired to kill him. They've already, way back there, these is well over a year and some before, they've determined that they want to kill him. And then John in 8, verse 59, where we were at most recently, at the end of that chapter as it is, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So John says, again, so there's the previous occasion, now they're determined once again. Jesus on that occasion had declared himself to precede Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. Which was very clear that it was a claim to be God, for indeed he is God. And we've just found it in our homily on the law that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the very embodiment of truth, God's truth. All truth is God's truth, and he is God. And indeed, he does precede Abraham. He is the one who came to Abraham. He's the one who called Abraham out before that. And he came to him and made the promises of the covenant that these people here at this occasion have rested upon with a, a false hope. Well, we're, we descended from Abraham, so everything is good with us. Everything is right with God, and very little concern for their souls in the recognition of their sin. That occasion, Jesus made a very truthful declaration. I am a claim to be God. And they wanted to stone him. Now he's said, I and the Father are one. Again, a very truthful statement. But the Jews were blind with unbelief. That's the nature of sin in, in anyone, in everyone, and indeed even in us, apart from the work of God's Holy Spirit. We're blind in unbelief. We fail to see the truth. We do not have ears to comprehend or to hear the truth. Now, Jesus in this situation is not saying that he was another God. He's not setting himself up as, you know, there's the God of Abraham, the God that you follow, and now I'm coming as another God. He makes it very clear that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that they, uh, Jesus refers to as the Father. We need to understand the Jews would never at this point, never would they refer to God as Father. This is something that Jesus brings to us. This is something that Jesus accomplishes, that uh, as he gives us a spirit, we can call him Father. But nonetheless, Jesus is even looking to that uh, soon-to-be-realized reality that God is his Father. And he says, we are one. He's not claiming to be another God. If indeed he was saying, there's God, the God of Abraham, I'm another God, then it would have been right for them to have stoned him. Because there's but one God. But God has revealed himself to be one God in three persons. We use the, the, the doctrinal term of the Trinity. Uh, it's a reality that's revealed in the scripture, though the word is not there. And here we see that reality, and particularly the Father and the Son. They are one. They are one God, along with the Holy Spirit, though that is not set before us at this point. Jesus is the one long ago promise. Remember when we were in Genesis, and Adam and Eve had sinned, and God came 
to Adam in the cool of the eve. And just, you know, he didn't discover that in sin he knew he had. But he engaged him. He drew him out. And Adam confessed that he had sinned. And in the course of that, then God begins to pronounce judgments. But he also makes a tremendous promise. Sin has just entered the world. Adam has just sinned. And thus he and all his descendants, having sinned in him, fell with him in that first transgression. Sin is now a reality. And what does God say? I will send the seed of the woman, and he will crush the serpent's head, even as the serpent bruises his heel. Jesus is that seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham, the one that God again came into Abraham and promised, calling him as one man out of all men and making a covenant with him to be a father of the seed. One who would come. Jesus is that seed, as Paul makes so clear in Galatians. Jesus is the one that was born of the virgin, just as was prophesied in Isaiah. Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah spoke these words in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't that interesting? This one who comes is a son of God, but we see one of his titles is Everlasting Father. Even there, in the prophecy of Isaiah, we have indications of the unity and the oneness of the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit. And all of those promises, and many, many more, are concerning the Messiah, and they are fulfilled in Christ. They are fulfilled in this one who stands before the people that they are ready to take up stones and to hurl at him in order to bring about his death. In spiritual blindness and in the deadness of sin, the only thing that they can think at his claim is blasphemy. And there's been no greater false charge laid against anyone in the course of human history. Jesus does not walk away this time. We referred back to chapter 8, verse 59. He just eluded them, invaded them, made his way out into the crowd that was there in the temple. Made his way, because he was not going to die from stoning. It was foretold that he'd be hung upon a tree, cursed as anyone who hangs upon a tree, that he would be the sin bearer, and that he would die in that manner. It was foretold not by stoning. So here he, he does not leave. Verse 31, they took up stones against him. Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. He, he does not shrink back. He does not pull back from his claim that I and the Father are one. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews then answered him, saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. But what is, what's the reality of the, the works? What do the good works do? What are they, what's their purpose? They bear witness. This is one of the realities from the beginning of time that the miracles are done. When God calls Moses out and he sends him to his people uh, uh, in Egypt in bondage, he said, you know, how am I going to prove anything? That, you know, I met God in the wilderness, you know, miles and miles away and you're sending me to them. And God says, I'll give you signs. And God gives him signs, miraculous signs to go before even Pharaoh and to do them. You know, taking the rod and casting it down becomes a serpent. It placing his gar- hand inside his garment, it comes out leprous. And of course, the first few of those, the magicians of Egypt, they do the same thing. But then it comes to you with a rod. Their rods become snakes, and Moses' rod eats up their snakes. And so it is that God has manifested who he sends and here we see in, the, in this, this period of, of marvelous grace, the visitation of God upon earth, when God becomes flesh and dwells among us. Jesus does mighty signs, glorious wonders in their midst. And they took up stones to kill him. And he challenges them. They're asking the wrong questions. Indeed, he goes all the way back to the garden in Adam's first sin. The question that should give the persons who ask them reason to stop and think. It's, this, this is an opportunity for them to stop and change their mind. Notice Jesus says, my good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Remember in the garden? Adam sin. The first thing God says, he asks him a question. And then there's questions and questions. 
this is what this is the way that God engages with us. This is an opportunity for us to stop and to think and to consider. We're reasonable creatures. We have the ability to reason and rationality. We're made in God's image. And there's an opportunity to change our mind, to stop what we're doing, to repent, to confess. And here we see Jesus doing that. He says, look at my works. These are mighty works. Has there ever been anyone in the course of the history? And these are the people that have the history. They have the Old Testament. They have the books of Moses. They have the history books that have been written by the prophets and handed down to them. These are the men that are schooled in these things and would have no doubt had the vast majority, maybe even the whole of it memorized. The works that he did bore witness that he was sent by the Father. That he was the fulfillment of the prophecy. He is the Messiah who has come. Did they change their mind? They refuse. They refuse to change their conclusion. Because their conclusion in verse 31, when they took up the stones, they've already concluded that he was blasphemy. And even though he questions them, gives them an opportunity to consider the evidence that speaks of who he is, they, now they say it. For a good work, we do not stone you. They recognize there are good works. There's been mighty works done, miraculous works. People uh, healed from uh, all manner of diseases, and yet they are hung up on this one reality. Because you see, if Jesus is the Son of God, then they owe him obedience and worship and homage. Remember when the blind man, the man who had been blind, was healed, and Jesus comes and finds him again later? And he reveals to him who he is. What does he do? He falls before Jesus and worships. That's the right response. When you come to understand who Jesus Christ is. But they, they dig in their heels. They're unwilling to change their mind. There's no repentance within them. They're unwilling to consider that the conclusion that they've arrived at was wrong. My friends, this is the harsh reality of our sin nature. We spoke of it uh, in the previous weeks that you know, we are dead in our trespasses. There's this matter of total depravity, which renders us completely unable. We are dead, spiritually dead, unable to do any spiritually, spiritual good thing. So in sin, pride, and unbelief, they are blinded to the truth. So Jesus' words to them were like an announcement over the loudspeaker. Look, here is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's, after all, how he was introduced by the river Jordan after he was baptized. The announcement is, here is the very one that I said was coming. Here is the only begotten son of God, born of the virgin, even as was foretold by the prophets. Uh, born in the city of David, as was prophesied through Micah. He is God come to earth, God incarnate but they're not going to have it all the evidence of his good works you could say are just kicked aside they just dismiss them and all they can consider is that this man speaks blasphemy because you being a man claim to be God because to look at him they saw a man for indeed so it was his humanity was so much like our humanity that availed the reality of his deity and the glory that he had as God. He still has that glory, but it's veiled by his humanity. And they're blind, even though all the works that he does and the preaching and the teaching he does reveal him to be who he is. No greater heir has been made by men than the heir of that day to deny these men who lived in that generation, who saw those works, heard his teaching, heard testimony from scores uh, thousands even of others telling of the great works he's done. They could not recognize when God walked in their midst. Well, we must consider, secondly, that the true Christ, the God-man, certainly you hear that, we've been driving toward that, but we want to focus on it at this point. By this point in Jesus' ministry, there has been so much evidence supplied as to who he is. Children, you children that are here, you, you can follow along with us. You think about the miracles that we've heard about. Jesus turning water, just plain ordinary water drawn out of a well into amazing, wonderful wine. There was a feeding of the 5,000 with five small loaves and a few fishes with an abundance left over. There was a healing of the sick with all manner of diseases and afflictions, including even leprosy, infirmities like paralysis that had lingered for some 38 years, even 
giving sight to a man who was born blind, who had never seen anything in his entire life. Jesus has done all this. Children, you can, you can consider this. Who is able to do such things? Who is there that is able to do such mighty works as this? Who on earth? You ever hear your parents say that? Something like that, on earth? You know, it's one of those long companies. And then it's, it's legitimate. Who on earth can do such mighty works? God alone. Or, in some cases, in limited, we've seen others do mighty works, but no one with this breadth and scope and degree. We're, we're very on the very threshold of Jesus raising a man laid in a tomb dead four days. Children, who can do such things as that? God alone can. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, does that not seem reasonable to you to conclude, yes, Jesus is God. He is who he says he is. He is exactly that, God come in the flesh, the promised one. And indeed, that's the right conclusion that we should make from what we see here, what we've heard here. The prophet Isaiah I love the fact that we're in Isaiah for our Old Testament homilies because uh, we've seen some of Christ. I've even referred to it in this sermon. We're going to see much more as we move into the next part of the the, uh, book. Isaiah is speaking 700 years. I know, children, you can't really grasp what 700 years is, particularly when you're 5 or 10, but uh, trust me, I'm, I'm 62, and 700 years is like, What a scope of time. Isaiah is way, way, way back in history from this day. And yet Isaiah spoke as the Holy Spirit moved him along. And he says amazing and remarkable things about the Messiah, Jehovah's servant, the Christ who would come. One of those uh, events or one of those records is in Isaiah 61. It's uh, the words that Jesus takes up when he finds that place in the scroll, when he's in Nazareth in the synagogue, and he reads these words, and they are true words. He is the right one to read him. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He has anointed me to what? To preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. When Jesus uttered those words, the people scoffed. Even at that occasion, they drove him out of the synagogue, out to the uh, cliff that was there in Nazareth, uh, wanting to throw him off. And yet, Jesus is the fulfillment, even as he said he was. He said, today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Now, notice this prophecy that is there in Isaiah. It's not focused on physical problems like blindness and paralysis and leprosy. It's really talking about Jesus addressing the biggest problem that every boy, every little boy and every little girl has, the biggest problem that every man and woman has, the problem of sin. That's where we're in poverty tidings to the poor. This is where we are brokenhearted, even in sin. Uh, Liberty to those who are captives. We are captives to sin and unable to escape. It's not as if some man can come along and unlock the door and let us out. No, this bondage is within us, and it's, it's a bondage that's justice because of Adam's first sin as well as our own. And Because of sin, we have no fellowship with God, and we have no life in our inner man. God is holy. He's pure light. And those who would come to him, they need to be holy. God has no fellowship with darkness. He has no fellowship with uncleanness. There's no impure thing in heaven. We need someone to rescue us, and that's exactly who Jesus is. He is the one that has been anointed by God to bring good tidings to the poor, to set the captives at liberty, to unlock the prison of sin and to deliver us. He alone. Turn with me all the way back to the opening of John's gospel. John's prologue as he sets out what he's going to be writing about, who he's going to be introducing. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. This word, the one he introduces, was with God. And furthermore, the word was God. It's already been declared that the Word, this one who is the Word, the Logos of God, is God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
Isn't that what we're seeing here in John chapter 10? They did not comprehend it. This is reality. We would not comprehend apart from God's work of grace. John continues, it was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness, to bear witness to the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, talking about John, but was sent to bear witness to that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. But he came to his own, and his own received him not. You see, this is John's prologue. He's saying this is the way it's going to happen. This is how it's going to play out. It's not unique. As uh, I believe it was the prophet Isaiah. You're going to go to a people. There's other prophecies. You're going to go to people and they're not going to listen to you. There's, you're not going to have any success. Imagine that being commissioned, called out by God for a job, and God says, oh, just by the way, you're going to have no success. Now, it's not that the word returned void. God's word went out through the prophet, and it was judgment and further wrath and condemnation heaped upon those that would not listen. But John is giving us a picture of what happened that day at the temple. All they could see was a man. And they said he spoke blasphemy because you being a man make yourself out to be God. But indeed, he is God. He is God come in the flesh. This is the great tidings that the angels celebrated at the time of the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. I mean in Bethlehem. And then there's this tremendous proof that we're talking about. And Jesus, he points those who are before him. Look at the works. He doesn't say, look at my works. He said, look at the, at the works that the Father gave me to do. He's pointing people to consider that I'm not just doing this on my own. I haven't just made this up. I don't just in myself have this strength. And we need to understand, in his humanity, that is true. In his humanity, Jesus didn't do any of this. He did it because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was doing the will of the Father as the second Adam in his humanity. We have a Redeemer. I'm going to talk about this again in a minute. We have a Redeemer who can be our Redeemer because he was fully man. He was one of us. He did these works because he was sent by the Father and full of the Holy Spirit, unlike anyone had ever been. The Spirit had come on other men, and they prophesied, they did miracles. But Jesus is full, without measure, overflowing, full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit could dwell in him in such a way because he's without sin. And yes, his person is the Son of God. And so Jesus is doing these mighty works as proof that the Father has sent him. And indeed, he's about to do a greater work with the raising of Lazarus. John tells us that Jesus, the living word, would bring light to men. And all this that we've been seeing thus far in John's gospel is light. We've seen that light have an impact upon a woman in Sychar. We've seen that light have an impact upon a man laying beside uh, the pool in Bethsaida. We've seen that light with a vivid picture of what the light does as the man blind from birth. That's us. And Jesus has opened his eyes. But he's also given that man a heart of faith, even as he gave the man at the pool of Bethsaida, as he gave the woman at the well. He's given them a new heart to believe, to see who he is. The woman who was caught in the very act of adultery teaches us much. She received a heart of flesh to replace her heart of stone, her sinful heart. She's been drugged out of sin before Christ, and her accusers want to stone her. Yes, they wanted to trap Jesus, but what does Jesus do? He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And little by little, from the oldest to the youngest, the accusers go away. And then he asks her uh, where her accusers were. Does no one condemn you? And her answer is, no one, Lord. And what does Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, how could Jesus say that to her without having done a work of grace? She's guilty. Before God and man, she's a guilty adulteress. But God the Son has baptized with the Spirit. She has a new heart. She is united to Christ by faith. This work of the Spirit has been done in her by the Holy Spirit that Christ has sent forth. Thus he could say to her, neither do I condemn you. You see, God will by no means acquit the guilty. So if she was guilty, the Son of God would have lied. To have said to her, neither do I condemn you. The reason he could say that is she was no longer guilty. And my friends, the only way to be no longer guilty is to be united to Christ. 
to be under his blood and his righteousness. And for her, the hope of the atoning sacrifice that would soon come for us, we look back to that reality that has been accomplished. And thus, Jesus could say to her, go and sin no more. When we're new creatures in Christ, now because we have the Spirit, there's the blessed hope that we can be sinning less and less, but always knowing we have an advocate with the Father whenever we sin. When it was Jesus who brought light into sin darkens heart, this, this group of uh, men before him, Jesus says, you're not my sheep. We considered last week how the doctrine of election is there. Because if they were his sheep, Jesus said, you would hear my voice and you would believe me and you would follow me. Jesus came in the world to bring life to those who are dead in sin. He came preaching good tidings to the poor and healing to the brokenhearted. He was the one who gave liberty to the captives, the one who sets sinners free from the bondage of sin and brings them out of the house in the kingdom of darkness into the house of light and life and liberty in Christ because of the work that he has accomplished. We also know that as the word of God, Jesus went about preaching and teaching. There was a point in his ministry when the disciples wanted to linger because there was more sick. He says, no, it is necessary that I go to the next villages preaching. For this reason I came into the world, to preach. It is through the preaching of the word. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And through the preaching of the word, he swept away the heirs of men, the accretions, the additions, like barnacles that have been laid on layer upon layer upon the pure law and the truth of God. And he preached as one who had authority, and the people marveled. They'd heard their religious leaders. And here was another one, a remarkable one, because he's the word. He's the one who gave Moses the law. He's the one who spoke to the prophet, through the prophets of old, and now he is walking on earth and speaking. Indeed, all the evidence was there that he is who he declared himself to be, the Son of Man. But he was more than a man. Everything he did and said proved that he was exactly who John presented him to the people. John, the last of the Old Testament prophets, anointed him, commissioned by God to be the one to anoint the Son of God as the Messiah, the one who is our prophet and our priest and king. And he said, I'm not worthy to stoop and unloose the latch of his sandal. He was before I am, John's testimony, a faithful prophet. You see, Jesus is fully God and fully man. There is no other like him. It is a remarkable reality, is it not? For a person, one person, to have two very distinct natures. There is no other like him. He alone is fully God and fully man, and he has to be fully God and fully man. As I said earlier, he has to be one of us to save us, which is why I've said, I think even to you, that there's no hope for the fallen angels. There's no redemption for them. It would require that Jesus, Son of God, come in that case in the form of an angel and, and live obediently before the Father and then die for their sins. It's not happening. He only came to save image bearers, those made in the image of God. And he had to be one of us to save us. And thus it was foretold, seed of Abraham, the seed of David, the seed of a woman. He's going to be man. But the evidence is also overwhelming that he will be God, fully God, God come in the flesh. Again, prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, mighty God. This one's come, he's mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I skipped over the wonderful counselor. He is all that. There's no man that can be all that. He can't be just a mere man. He has to be fully God. And in order to take on himself our sins and die in our place, no mere man can do that because any mere man would have sins of his own to die for. And so his person, God, was altogether righteous. He had the very righteousness of God. And therefore, as the God-man, he lived obediently as a man, and he died as a man, as I've said to you before, he offered up himself as the high priest on the altar of his deity. His humanity was sacrificed, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. I and the Father are one. One God, two persons are in view here. We know there's the third person. The scripture makes it very clear. These three persons are one God, a trinity equal in power and glory of the same essence, the same God, one God, not three gods. And this God, the creator of the heaven and earth, so loved the world 
that he sent his son into the world to save sinners, that whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came to be our prophet, to declare the word of God and the will of God for our salvation. He came as a priest, our priest, to make the sacrifice even of himself for our sin. And he came as the conquering king to liberate us from the bondage of the evil one who deceived our first parents in the garden the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious Savior, the God-man. Do you believe that Jesus is God's Son? Do you believe that He is God come in the flesh? Do you believe that He is God-man, fully God and fully man, and no other? He's more than a good teacher. He was that. The world would be happy to have Him as a good teacher, but He's so much more than that. They would have Him and even declare that He was a prophet, but He was more than that. He is the prophet of prophets. He was a good example, but he was way more than a good example. He doesn't just show sinners how to live. He died to save sinners, and he's the only savior of sinners. If you would be free from your burden of sin, flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. He saves to the uttermost. He receives sinners with open arms. He extends compassion, a welcome when you come to him. Well, Jesus answers the false charge that we find here. In verse 34, after they've said that you being a man make yourself out to be God, Jesus answers them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Have you heard that before? You go, what exactly is he saying there? Well, part of our problem is we're so far removed. He's quoting from Psalm 82, verse 6. And it's a short psalm. Uh, many of those that heard him, certainly the religious leaders, would have had the psalm memorized. And they would have understood the context. Turn with me to Psalm 82. Let's just look at it. It's, it's like I said, it's a very brief psalm. Psalm 82. In verse 2, God is condemning the people. Well, in verse 1, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So this, this is an indictment. This is God pronouncing condemnation amongst the gods. And then in verse 6, he said, I said, you are gods. He's speaking to the judges that he's rebuking, the judges who he's come to find fault with. These are the rulers in Israel. Why are they called gods? It's interesting. Um, Solomon in Ecclesiastes uses the same image. He, he speaks um, much like Psalm 2. He speaks to those who are judges, kings, rulers, princes. And he says, you have one you answer to. You're under God. We, this is true of our, our political leaders today. They are all under God because they all answer to God. And they are in the position of being God's little g. Because they are in the place of God. Children, you have heard from this pulpit many, many, many times the fifth commandment. How parents in the commandment, are superiors, are styled as parents. This is one of the alarming realities as fathers. And is that in a sense, we stand in the place of God. We are gods, little g gods, as we represent to our children. It's especially true when they're so little. The only concept they have of who God is is that which we communicate to them, that which we uh, uh, picture for them. God's finding faults with these judges in Israel because they sat in the place of God as they sat in the place of judgment over the people. This began all the way back in Exodus 18 when Moses um, divided the people up into tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands and appointed elders to rule over them to judge, to make judgments amongst the people. Under God, but over the people. As superiors, they represent God. It is a tremendous responsibility. And so the psalmist laments the fact that so many judges did not judge with justice. Verse 6, I said to you, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So you see, he's using gods there, not talking about deity. Just as an aside, the Mormons take this passage and say, see, we're going to become gods. This, this is one of their proof texts that you know, they're going to be gods in eternity. The problem is that the text says you are gods. 
not you're going to become gods. Those that God is addressing through the prophet in the psalm, they're, they're already gods. They already are in this position. It's not a matter of deity. And furthermore, what does it say? Verse 7, you shall die like men. So these are not gods like the one true living God who cannot die, who always has been. They're but a shadow and a reflection in their office, and they are judged and condemned because they've been unfaithful in their office. Now this all sheds light on the psalm. James White from Alpha Omega Ministries, uh, he says, The psalm itself contains the prophecy of doom, the doom of these unrighteous judges. Obviously, therefore, the psalm is not about eternal or infinite gods. Infinite true gods don't die like men, as the, the psalmist says, but rather applies the term gods to men in a figurative way due to their position as judges in Israel. The Jews that heard Jesus would have understood the background of the psalm, and they would understand that Jesus was accusing them of being false gods. They're taking exception because he has said, I and the Father are one. He has made himself out, indeed rightly declared, that he is God, big G, eternal with the Father. But he's, he's reminding them of this psalm because they're sitting, could we say, in the seat of Moses as judges. And what are they doing? They are judging unrighteously. Here is God before them. And they're doing the very thing that those judges that were indicted in Psalm 82, they're doing it. Here is the Son of God rightly declaring to be one with the Father, to be God with all the evidence. If a judge sits in judgment in a courtroom. And so here's this abundance, super abundance of evidence that Jesus is God, the Son of God, God come in the flesh, and they call it blasphemy. And so, the air is on them. Now, for myself, I used to think, well, and somehow Jesus is using that psalm to say that it's not wrong for him to call himself God. But it's a different God altogether. It's not about that. He's indicting them. As they're pressing upon him, saying he's blasphemy, he says, no, you are unrighteous judges making unrighteous judgments concerning me. That's the air that you are doing. And it says it, he goes on. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you, you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming. You're in this position. Are you going to make this unrighteous judgment? Are you going to say to the one who's speaking truth, you're blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God? And then he brings the evidence before them again. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. He said, okay, you're judges. You're in this place of God, under God. Here's this evidence. You're going to look at it. It's all a clear testimony of who I am. He says, if you're not, uh, are you going to dismiss that? He says, if I do not do the works of my father, are they the works of his father? Absolutely, clearly, certainly, most assuredly they are. But he says, if they're not, if indeed you can rightly, righteously conclude that, don't believe me. In other words, your, your test, your conclusion would be true. But he says, if I do, through though you do not believe me, he said, if I do, what? The righteous works of the Father. Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is saying the evidence is overwhelmingly clear. I and the Father are one. I am God. I am the fulfillment of the prophecies. I am the seed of, of the woman. I am the seed of Abraham. I am the seed of David. I am the one that comes and fulfills all those things. And you men, these religious leaders of all, should know that. They had a kind of an early clue when the wise men came and they went to King Herod and he was alarmed and they searched the scriptures and said, Well, he's. Prophet Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Something's going on. A sign's appeared. Wise men come from afar. A baby's been born. He's a king. You know, these, this is the body of men that 30 years ago should have been clued in. Something's up. Something's fixing to happen. And they should have been on their, their uh, P's and Q's and searching the scriptures. And what they would have seen is Jesus fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. The fact remains what Jesus said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The Jews of that day could not believe that unless the Spirit worked in them, that is, to do a mighty work of them, take out a heart of stone, they couldn't have believed. But it's a biblical truth. Those whom the Holy Spirit has worked in, they hear the voice of Jesus. You hear what Jesus is saying here? You've heard the testimony of the Scripture? You've seen the record of who he is? Do you believe? 
then give God the glory. It's not because you're wiser than other men. It's because God has had mercy on your soul to convert you, to give you a heart of flesh, to give you a renewed will, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God does that. And indeed, Jesus is your good shepherd. And when he calls you, you hear him and follow him because the Holy Spirit has drawn you with irresistible grace. My precious little children, you children that are here today, you may not be able to understand all the things that are going on here, but you can understand that Jesus is remarkably unique. There is no other one like him. He is the Son of God, and he has come to save sinners, even like you little children. Come to Jesus. Indeed, welcome to Jesus. Well, John gives us a postscript, as it were. Verse 39 makes it very clear that the testimony of the living God, the testimony of the one who is truth himself, they're not moved because the Spirit has not moved upon them. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. We've had that happen a couple times, and every time we read that, we're like, I wonder how he did that. We're not told, so don't wonder about it too long. In God's providence, he escaped. And where did he go? He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. So here we are in December. This has taken place. He's gone beyond the Jordan. But don't you love what verse 30, 41 and 42 say? Then many came to him. Many came to him. And what are they doing? They're thinking about all this. They're remembering back when John the Baptist introduced him. They, they're mulling this over. They're thinking on it. And they said, John performed no sign. And what happened? Many went out to him. He was a prophet. He was declaring the word of God. Many went out to him. He did no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man, so John's a a true prophet, a faithful prophet. They know that. And everything that John has prophesied concerning this man, big M, the son of man, the God man, they're true. How do you know a prophet's true? Because of what he says is true. It happens. It comes to pass. In verse 42, in many believed in him there out by the Jordan in some sense out where this period of history began under the leadership of John handed off to Jesus many were believing him well as I said we'll close with some implications and applications for the Christian in particular here we have a faithful and true message we as followers of Christ are called to know it and to believe it that is the matters of Christ, who he is, the God-man, our prophet and priest and king, sent by the Father. It's the truth that sets us free. This truth should govern us day by day. This truth of who Christ is, our Lord and King, should help us as we seek to live in obedience before him, knowing that the Spirit has given us a new heart, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. He set us free from the shackles of sin. We are no longer in the bondage. We are brought out from the power of sin. We can live in some level of obedience. But in light of the times in which we live, I also want to say, since God our Father was able to govern all that, you know, here's these people determined to kill Jesus. And they can't do it until it's time. When, as John says, when his hour comes, then he will die exactly in the manner that the Father prescribed and exactly at the time that the Father prescribed. If God was able to do all that, is he not able to govern our days? You hear the headlines, you listen to your podcast, you, you turn on the radio, and it may just seem like... Somebody's trying to seize you, ruin your life, drag you off. And that may well happen as we follow Christ. But God is God. He is our Father. And he's ruling and reigning over all things. And he has set Christ, his Son, as the prophecy in Psalm 2 says, as the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is seated on the throne of Zion, ruling with a rod of iron. And the command goes out to the kings, these lesser gods, kiss the Son lest he be angry with you. My friends, do not despair, no matter what the headlines may be. We have brothers and sisters in Haiti that are suffering right now after having an a earthquake, and now there's a tropical storm bearing down on them. I know some of those folks. They have a remarkable faith. They have a, a mere fraction of what we have. But when it comes to spiritual maturity, what I saw down there, they're giants in the faith. Pray for them. They're resting in the knowledge that Christ is king. Just because we're not in that circumstance doesn't mean we should not as well. Let us rest. We know the truth. Therefore, rest in that truth. Do not wrestle against it. 
Paul writes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Pharisees knew the Bible, the Word of God, but they did not live it. They were like the hard-packed path in the parable of the sower. And even though the Word was there, it never found root in them. James writes to us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. That's the evidence of a fruitful soil. Well, soil that the Lord has worked in. Doers of the words. What is it then? We're called to holiness by the grace of God, by the word of God, and the working of the Holy Spirit within us. Let us run the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on the prize of the high calling which is in Christ Jesus, pressing on day by day. For he who called us is faithful. He also will do it. And finally, one further application. We're surrounded by those who are perishing. There's people all around us that are in tremendous anxiety, many of them over the pandemic. I don't know where you come down on how you think, how serious or important it is. That's really beside the point. We have people around us that are terrified. I go out in the shopping place. I see them, two masks on, uh, walking around hunched down. They're fearful. Let's tell people we know about Jesus. Let's proclaim to them that God reigns on high. Nothing is happening by accident. Everything is exactly as he has ordered to be. And parents that begins at home, make disciples of your children. Teach them whatsoever things God has commanded you. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about your struggles and tell them how you found God to be faithful. We have a great king. Amen. Father, we ask your blessing on that which we've heard. We thank you that you have opened our eyes, our hearts to see Jesus. For we know, Father, that apart from the work in your spirit, we'd be just like those men shouting, you're a blasphemer. But because you have had mercy on us, we cry out, my Lord and my God. And we rejoice that your son has brought us to you that we can cry, Abba, Father. Lord, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, tender mercies, day by day. All in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.